Hello, everyone. Today is a great day. It's a great day because we're doing the podcast. Hi there. I'm Chase Jarvis. Welcome to another episode of the show, the Chase Jarvis Live Show here on Creative Live. This show is where I sit down and interview the world's top creatives, entrepreneurs, and thought leaders, and I do everything I can to add value to you, unpack some of those insights that these folks have learned along the way to help you live your dreams in career and hobby and in life. My guest today is going to blow you away. My guest is Ryan Holiday. Ryan is an author and entrepreneur and one of the sharpest marketing minds out there. He, I think, I talk about seeing around the corner as a gift that some entrepreneurs have. Um, I've stumbled into that lucky enough a couple times in my career to see around the corner about, say, mobile photography or the future of education. Ryan spent, Ryan is the quintessential seer around the corner-er. Uh, he was talking about so many of the things that we find commonplace in media now 10 years ago and so so much longer before anyone else I knew was talking about those things. He got to start working for best-selling authors like Tucker Max and Robert Green, author of 48 Laws of Power, amazing book, also a previous guest on the show. And he's since worked with folks like Tony Robbins, Tim Ferriss, Evan Carmichael, John Grisham, among others. I think he's written like five books now, uh, including two last year two of which I were on my uh, annual recommended reading list, one called Ego is the Enemy, and another, The Daily Stoic. So here's something interesting. This episode was originally recorded a couple years ago, back when Ryan was promoting his book before, the, ones, the two that I just mentioned, that book called Trust Me, I'm Lying, his first book, also a New York Times bestseller. And that that's... One that was, when I talked about seeing around the corner, this is the blueprint for what we today know as, quote, fake news or a post-truth world. Ryan was talking about this before anyone that I knew. Um, the subtitle of this thing is Confessions of a Media Manipulator, which Ryan considered himself an earlier version of himself back when he was working for the brand American Apparel. Uh, it's it's a brilliant deconstruction of the ways that media can be manipulated uh, with the idea that creators can use those tactics to spread the word about their own projects. Uh, it was a fascinating, super eye-opening discussion, one of the most popular episodes of the show from that early era. And if you are looking for hands-on tips for promoting your own work, this is going to be an impactful episode for you. The reason I'm doing this, bringing it a previous episode back to life here, this wasn't ever captured in podcast. This was only video, and I've had specific requests to get the audio version of this out there, so I thought I would. couple other highlights for the episode. Uh, when Ryan dropped out of college, age 19, it was because he realized he'd have better opportunities. Uh, specifically, the American Apparel thing was on his tip, and the ability to go to work for a genius like Robert Greene. And I'm sure you're aware of the challenges we feel culturally. Like, do we take quote the traditional path, or do we go what was what used to be thought of as risky? Um, at that point, certainly was risky to go to work for some author, and now it's becoming almost self-evident that those paths may create more opportunities than the traditional ones that we we used to reminisce about. Uh, he says you are your own chief marketing officer. It's a really thoughtful way of capturing your own personal brand. So how do you actually also promote that work in addition to making? Um, 
one of the thing, one of the highlight, I guess, we talk about very, very practical hands-on tactics for getting coverage for your work. Not in the trust me, I'm lying sense, but specifically how to turn your message into something, how to package your message such that other people are interested in telling your story for you. This episode is chock full. So for those of you who requested it, thank you for requesting it. You guys should know that I do take requests. For those of you who didn't request it, you are in for a treat. So with that, let's get into the show. But before we do, a quick word from our sponsor. This episode of Chase Jarvis Live Show is brought to you by Creative Live. Creative Live is the world's largest and best platform for creative and entrepreneurial education. And right now you're saying, wait a minute, isn't that the company that you started? Yes, it is. It is my company, but they make this show possible. And if you don't know anything about Creative Live, you must check it out. It's where Pulitzer Prize winners, New York Times bestsellers, the best of the best teach photo, video, art design, music and audio, craft and maker, and the ability to make a living and a life in all of those disciplines. There is free content there 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And there's also more than 10,000 hours of content for you to access on demand. You guys know I'm a huge believer in the power of daily habits. And today, Creative Live, as a part of the sponsor announcement, wants you to know that they have a new, very powerful way to make education a part of your daily routine. That would be the Creative Live iPhone, iPad, and Apple TV apps. They're all free, and they let you watch all of the Creative Live classes that are on-air streaming for free, anything you already own, and on the iPhone and iPad apps, you can watch one daily lesson of your choosing for free. That is one of 25,000 lessons for free, which is super, <laughs> super gnarly. To get those apps, go to the App Store, uh, iTunes, and search Creative Live, or go to creativelive.com slash apps. There you go. Now, let's get into the show. clap. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Chase Jarvis Live. I am Chase Jarvis. I'm a photographer and a director. I hope you're familiar with my work. About once or twice a month, I'd like to have an amazing guest, a friend of mine who's changing the world in whatever it is that they work on, here to the show to tell you folks in the live studio audience and all of y'all out there in the internet um, some secrets about what it is that they've done, how they've done it, why they've done it, what motivates them. So, Today's guest is completely amazing, and before I get to, to him, I want to say huge thanks to, uh, to HP, our presenting sponsor, for helping me make the world a more creative place, and a huge thanks to Braun Color and B&H for without whom none of this could be possible, all this gear and whatnot. Um, boy, we have a, there's two contests. One I'm wrapping up right now, which is uh, the folks that have been pimping the show so far and getting people to tune in live right now. And those folks are, maybe Megan can give them to me, I don't have them on the monitor right there. Um, it's also the start of a new contest with if you hear something that you like, if you hear a quote, probably something that Ryan says and you wanna share it with your audience socially, include that quote, uh, the URL to this page where you're at right now and hashtag CJ Live. At the end of the show, we will be giving away two, not one, but two signed copies of Ryan's book plus some really cool behind the scenes case studies of how he did, very specifically how he did what he did in the book. Um, 
So the book is not yet in print except for these ones here on the desk. It comes out in July 19th. I think we'll get that information. Um, so that contest starts right now and the contest that I'm wrapping up was Atpreneur. Thank you very much for helping us uh, pimp the show. You will be getting a signed book and at Sunsaraya. Sunsaraya, these things are very hard for me to pronounce. E-U-N-S-A-R-A-Y-E. I think the producers sometimes just make it the most difficult thing for me possibly to say. But um, So shifting gears, the guest today is completely remarkable. He is what I call a media genius. He tricked the system by living within it. Um, I would say his background at American Apparel was something that will be written about long into the future, about how he basically was a, a very influential part of changing and creating a brand that is now you know, a multi-billion dollar brand. And he did so at just 24 years old, which actually started at 21, and now he's 24 years old. So he has um, basically understood more about this sort of media landscape than mo most anybody I know in my life. He's here to give us a lot of advice and do a little hard-hitting show at actual, this is what you want to do to change, to change the world that you live in. So please join me in giving a huge warm welcome to my good friend, Mr. Ryan Holiday. Yeah, buddy. Thank you. You guys are some of the best clappers ever. Ah, <laughs> oh, amazing clappers. Before I dive in with Ryan, remember you folks on the internet can be uh, talking with us via hashtag CJLive. You can ask questions. Our producers will be taking questions from all over the world. Uh, more than 100 countries will be talking to us today. So thank you. Thanks for having me. We have to pretend that we didn't go out to dinner and talk about all the things we we're going to talk about on the show. So I know. It's the first time we've ever talked about this stuff. Um, so one of the things that I think is the most important is, first of all, let's pimp this just for a second. Trust me, I'm lying. When does it come out? July 19th. July 19th. And you like the cover? I love the cover. What do you think about the cover? Thumbs up, down, or sideways? Come on, I want to see you in the... There we go. I don't see a single sideways, because you know you'd get hammered by the person next to you. Oh, a sideways? <laughs> oh, watch it, Taylor. Um, yeah, we talked a lot about the cover. I think it's, it's really, really beautiful. Um, the title, Trust Me, I'm Lying, where'd that come from? Uh, I'm not sure. I think I don't think it was me. I, I have to not take credit for this one, but like I know a good idea when I see one, and when we when I'm very big on testing, and so when we tested it, and everyone had a, a visceral reaction, either good or bad, I knew that that's what we were going to go with. Yeah. When I said my told my mom that I was going to have you on this show, his title of his new book is Trust Me, I'm Lying, and mom's like, I don't know if I like liars. <laughs> um, no, amazing book. We'll get to that in just a second. Comes out the 19th. We yep. have to have you sign these before you go, okay. don't forget. Um, I don't so, think I've signed any copies yet, so that'll be a first. Like literally, you hear that? That's the first ever signature, and it's gonna go to someone in our audience. Um, about you, background. Yeah. So you dropped out at, at 19 years old. Yeah, uh, the end of my sophomore year of college. Okay. Um, and I'm, I wasn't one of those people, like I think there's, there's sort of this misconception about dropouts that like dropouts suck at school or they hate school. Like, I liked it. It's just like, I think if you have an opportunity to do something better, why would you stick to doing something just because that's what everyone else does? Yeah, those that's old institutions on the Hill haven't gone away. They're not leaving anytime soon, though they're getting smaller in influence for sure. But they'll always be there when you want to come back, if in fact you want to. But you didn't want to, and neither did I actually. I quit too. So. You dropped out? I did, yeah. Nice. Mm -hmm. I'm good at quitting actually. It's one of my. That's, <laughs> I, I, 
I can see several times in my life where I've dropped out of something that I think other people would have been comfortable with or kept doing. And every time I've done that, I've moved on to something better and cooler and more interesting and made more money at. So let's, you dropped out your sophomore year in college. You right. said, I'm done with this thing. This smells funny. And specifically because you had an opportunity or did you just quit and say, this is not for me? So basically, I'd, I'd, been, I'd been working for uh, two New York Times bestselling authors. Um, and it was like, I remember I, I was living in LA. I was working for them. And then one day, it sort of occurred to me, like, I have to pack up all my stuff and stop doing this so I can go back and sit in a classroom and learn about how to do this. And that just <laughs> didn't make any sense to me. And so I never went back. That's beautiful. And for what it's worth, I, we were talking about this at dinner. Sorry you guys run in our dinner conversation. It's probably better than the show is going to be. But um, that, that education is completely transforming. Now, full disclosure, I uh, am a founder, a co-founder with my friend Craig and a couple other guys in a company called Creative Live. And the goal there is to transform the way we learn. Right. And learning like with actual things that actually matter, things that professionals in any field, whatever the field is that we'd be talking about, have done, won, lost, tried, broke, succeeded. And to me, that is like this materialist, tangible thing is so important. So Here, I mean, here's the way I look at it. I look at my education as having really started the day I dropped out of school. Because now it was on me, it was my full-time job, and no one was going to demand that I turn in papers. Like if I wanted to learn things or read books or uh, find out about stuff that I didn't know, like I had to do it. And so for me, that's when education became real and I really valued it because it wasn't, you know, a 9 a.m. class and then a noon class and then a 3 p.m. class. It was all the time, every day, and it was on me. And it was immersive. You know, it was yeah, all, yeah, and it was cool. And you could actually see, it, you weren't just doing it like in a vacuum. Like you, you could actually see results from what you were doing. So there's this, I have this weird um, soundtrack that plays in my mind that some of the most successful people in our culture, you, uh, like Steve Jobs, for example, um, will even throw Microsoft the bone, Bill Gates, they dropped out of the traditional paradigm to be incredibly successful, mostly to pursue a passion or something that was like inside of them and, and never look back. And yet when, I think it's normal and responsible, but how is it really actually affecting things when our parents are saying, no, 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 you have to you know, go to college and do these things. But yet my parents or parents in general celebrate these cultural heroes with us. Right. Which is, well, my kid's not going to be a cultural hero, or my kid's not going to find his or her own calling in life, or like, what, what's, what's going on there? I think everyone ex like sort of respects dropping out in the abstract, but then when it comes to someone you know, then it's scary and it's uncertain and it's, it's like a little bit weird. But I mean, all those people, and I, would, I guess I'd have to include myself in it, it's not like I jumped off a moving train onto the ground. Like, I jumped from one train to another that I thought was going to go further and go faster. And so, like, when I, I talk to kids, like, they email me all the time. They're like, you know, I hate school. I'm thinking about dropping out. And it's like, to do what? Like, what do you have that's an alternative? Because, like, in, in terms of a place to sort of bide your time and look for opportunities, school's a great place to do that. Right. But it's not a good place to do instead of other, other opportunities. I think the same can be said for one profession to another. Right? That's, yeah, if right. I could teach a class, it would be in how to like transition from totally. out of something that sucks into something that's great. Because whether it's school and, and leaving or uh, what I 
tend to see more regularly is people who are creatives stuck in a body that's got them in a cube and it's not working for them. How do you get out of that into the thing that you want to do more than anything else? Right. It's really easy to be dissatisfied with something and quit. But I don't have that much respect for that. I have something, I, I have more respect for people where it's like, this isn't what I want to do, this is what I want to do instead, and here's how I'm going to get from point A to point B. Not just, I'm going to abandon point A. Because yeah. then you're actually in a worse position because what, you have no resources, you have no money, you have no, you have no leverage in, in your new, in, into getting to the new situation. Speaking of new situations, you yes. dropped out, right. and you got yourself into a really new, interesting situation called the director of marketing at American Apparel. So you're the youngest person who's ever been on this couch okay. by a fair margin. That's an honor. Yes. Um, the, the idea of someone who is at that age is troubling for most folks and ha that have the responsibility that you had. So you're obviously a badass. What, like, how did you, what, tell me the story from dropping out to stepping into arguably, you know, one of uh, uh, an emerging and interesting and evocative and provocative brand here in the U.S. Like that's a weird and I mean, super sweet transition. I don't so, know. How you so did people it. always say like you know it's it's who you know, and then they don't think that that uh, like actually works in real life. Like mm -hmm. that's what happened to me. So I, I'm I'm working for these authors, and these authors know interesting people who are doing interesting things who are not in their field. And so I was working for the author Robert Greene at the time, who's the author of uh, The 48 Laws of Power, The 33 Strategies of War, and he just wrote a book with 50 Cent. And, um, so he like numbers, he really likes numbers, right? Yeah, right, <laughs> right. 50 um, Cent was a curveball there. I was, right. was going to say lists. Well, and well then it's called it, the 50th Law, so it's still got numbers in it. Respect. Um, but so, so basically, I'm, I'm working for him, and he happens to be a strategic advisor to the CEO and owner of American Apparel. And it's not like I came in as the director of marketing. I'm never sort of like... I, I always tend to start at the bottom and I work my way up through a system. And so in that case, like it was who I knew, they had a problem, I came in and I fixed it and I never left. And uh, I, I saw a need and I saw an opportunity to like sort of use my knowledge and skills and to develop new ones at the same time. And then the next thing you know, that's my position now. Well, the fact that you can A, fix things when you're 20 years old is impressive, but what you fixed, I think, is an understanding of a media culture. Right. And that, to me, is one of the reasons that we have a full house today and that there are a lot of people paying attention to what it is we're talking about online right now because that's at the core of, like, wait a minute, okay, this kid's, now he's, you know, he started at, at 21 in American Apparel, 24 now, worked for all these best-selling authors, and what was, like, what was the key? What got you in the door? And if I was to summarize it, I would say it's this understanding of a landscape that people, by and large, don't understand. I had to learn most of it, and I, I still would have a lot to learn from you, but the, the hacking components of trying to make your message stick in a really slippery world is an art. It's more art than science, for sure. Of course, of course. I, I think what it is is, like, these companies have, companies and people have trouble sort of translating what they want to say to this very busy world of blogs and Twitter and Facebook and, and craziness and chatter and they need people who can help translate those things for them and honestly like doing what they do is a full-time job and so how do you how do you sort of add on top of what they're doing how do you how do you take what they're making and then get it attention and get it to spread and get it in front of people because like they're sort of out of gas when they hit that that final spot. Yeah, and, and the irony, we, this is a 
maybe one of my favorite points we talked about last night is for the creatives out there um, or people who are thinking about sort of making a transition, uh, maybe a little bit more applicable to creatives, but they think, or I have been guilty of this at one point or another, maybe, maybe more, uh, thinking that I just made this thing, I just published a book, or if you're a musician, you launch an album, if you're a writer, you, 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 know, you wrote a book, or you can you know, in, insert any number of um, occupations that your work is somehow done and then it's just gonna go out there, it's so good. My shit is so good, it's just gonna go out there and poof. How often does that happen? I mean, uh, it happens all the time. That's the big myth. The big myth is that the internet or the entire media culture is somehow a meritocracy and that if you do good stuff, that's enough. All you have to do is finish your book and hand it to a publisher and it's gonna sell a million copies. You have to make your funny viral video and post it and then it's gonna get passed around and thousands of people are gonna see it and then you're gonna be on TV and it's gonna be an internet meme and that's, that's how it works. And that's, in my experience, that is just not how it works. And I've seen a lot of huge companies and a lot of big people post things that get zero views. And that's like, that's very stunning because the old system was about, you know, you're a writer, you mail your manuscript to New York and then you get a final copy six months later and, and you hear that it's a New York Times bestseller. Because those companies used to have distribution, they used to be able to put it in stores and that's where people found out about stuff. And that's not how it works anymore. Now it goes out on the internet and it has to stand and fight for itself against a million other things constantly all the time. And not just things in their genre. You have to fight against everything, right? I mean, porn is a click away at any given moment. <laughs> and that's something you always have to remember when you're doing work. Well said. Well, that might get retweeted a couple of times. Um, so let's talk about this for just a second. Because one of the things that, you know, a couple previous episodes, uh, one, and you know both these guys, Ramit Sethi and right. Tim Ferriss, what people, the feedback we got from those shows is like super actionable, like lists, and it sent me out to kick ass in the universe. Right. So, if you're just telling us right here that you can't sit back, you can't just you know publish your internet video, you can't just finish your book or shoot an ad campaign or take your you know your new portfolio pictures and put it out there and just see what happens, what do you do? Well, first off, you have to accept that no one is going to do it for you. Like. The publisher's not going to do it for you. The magazine's not going to do it for you. YouTube's not going to do it for you. Twitter's not going to do it for you. You have to accept, like with all things, that if it's going to get done and it's going to get done right, it's on you. And so you have to make that part of your job description. Like you're the chief marketing officer for you, the company. You're your own publicist. And at the end of the day, no publicist is ever going to care about your work as much as you do and they're not gonna understand it the way you do. So that's, that's my favorite thing, and, and what I love about American Apparel is Dove, the, the founder, very early on was like, I'm not gonna pay some outside company millions of dollars a year to communicate what I think to the public, because they're never gonna know what I'm trying to say as well as I do. And so instead of you know, paying Edelman or BWR, or whatever, a huge retainer to, to do their marketing campaigns or to communicate with the public, he's like, I'm gonna develop my own style, I'm gonna do it myself, and I, I think it's worked, but so many other people, they, they think like, okay, I'll just hire a publicist for my book and then he's gonna get me press. Well, he's gonna do the bare minimum that the money that you Warns. pay him requires, yeah. but you, on the other hand, are gonna chase every lead, you're gonna say yes to everything. Which is how I got you on the show, right? It's the only right. reason. 
<laughs> I mean, we know, I'm on the show because I know you and we've talked yeah. and if, if I'd had a publicist talk to you, you'd been like, who the fuck is this guy? Yeah, exactly and um, so, so I think first off, it's accept that that's your job. And then you have to, you're gonna have to go out and pound the pavement. You're gonna have to know who you want to write about you and you're gonna have to make it in their interest to do so. Like I think Tim, uh, who's a mutual friend, is a great example of this. He didn't publish a book and then expect tech bloggers to write about it magically on the day of release. No, he spent two years on the road going from conference to conference, meeting every single one of the people that he wanted to write, that he wanted to write about him, and he personally gave them a copy of the book, and he talked to them, and he told them why this book is a fit for them, and he put a face and a name behind that project. And um, at the end of the day, there's no, like, I wish I could give you guys like a bunch of secrets and say like, here's how you can magically get press for your, for your thing. But at the end of the day, it's, there's no substitute for knowing the space that you want to get attention in and being connected to the people who can do that for you. He spent two years before, like while he was concurrently writing, after right. book deal, before publishing, lining up the people that he wanted to help him spread his message. And it wasn't lining up one-off high fives, here's a book, go write about it. It was real relationships. And that's one of the things that I think is, is remarkable, not, not just about Tim and Ramit, but about this, this is the way the world works. If you have to have an understanding, you have to have a reputation, you have to have relationships in your world. If you write about um, sports, then you better know the manager of the Oakland A's and the New York Yankees. Or like you, you have to have this sort of, A, a passion for understanding your, your stuff. Because if you don't have a passion, you're not gonna get there. B, relationships, cultivate real relationships, not right. bullshit like one-off. Um, I personally get, and I don't, how many times have you guys seen book reviews on my site? Almost never. Every once in a while, I'll definitely say, this is a great book, must read it. I get probably five a week, and Megan can, of people just randomly mailing me a book. There's no letter, it's literally a box of three books with a, with a little piece of paper and it's a shipping thing. Like, I don't know you, I don't know anything about your book, I don't, like, and that is the most impersonal. Not only does it make me not want to do, yeah, not only am I not going to do it, but I sort of have a little bit of like. Well, I mean, let's that analyze that for a second. So first off, their, their first mistake is sending it to someone who's not a fit, right? How are they, why would they be sending a book to someone who doesn't review books? That's like a huge mistake. People are like, oh, I put together this big list of things and then you're, you're giving the book to people, but there's no, there's no potential ROI there. Like what are they going to do about it? And then, I usually recycle it, sadly. Right. Um, and then it's, think about, they don't, they don't think about it from the person's perspective. So, like, you're a very busy person and your time is worth a lot of money. So what, they're not only not, they're not only sending the book to someone who can't really write about it. What they're in effect saying by sending you the book is, here, you read this book, read the entire thing, and then figure out how you can do me the favor of publicizing my work which is preposterous, that's never gonna happen. How wrong is that? That's, I mean, it's just, it it's, happens to me five times a week. It, it's just never, and the reason it happens five times of, a it's week it's is because <laughs> book publicists who work at publishing houses are just, that's their job, they just send out books to people, right? Like, because they don't care about it the way that an author is gonna care about it. So what's the right way to do that? It's first off to find Hold someone. On. And this is the part where you should really be listening, because this is the part where we're talking about what individual, what entrepreneurs and what artists and creatives can do 
to get their work noticed, for example. So yeah, okay. so like hypothetically, you're, you're promoting a book, right? So first off, you find someone who actually has a site that you can write about. Like I write about books, but I never review books, but people send me books to review all the time. So like right off the bat, that's not a fit. But what you actually want to do is you want to take, you're, you're not going to get from a complete stranger them to sit down and read 250 pages, figure out a post, and then do that post. You have to go to them from, and, and think about it from their perspective and give them a handle with which they can pick up your thing and communicate it to their audience. You've got to do the work for them. Like, tell them this chapter two, I think, makes total sense for your audience. It's really interesting and it tells people how to do, you know, insert problem that that blog writes about regularly. And you, you can even say, like, you know, you've written about this before and it was a really popular post. Because at the end of the day, you're not pitching the New York Times, which, um, you know, sort of has all these, you know, complicated editorial standards, but, but more importantly, they have a limited amount of space that they can fit in the paper. So like the New York Times writes about you, they're doing you a favor because there's someone else that they could have written about instead of you. If I come to you and I say like, hey, here's a really good post or here's a really good book that would be perfect for your audience. I've already broken it down for you. Well, I just gave you something that's essentially a favor to you. You're doing, I'm doing you a favor because Here's now- a great piece of content. Right, you just have to put it up and it's gonna be good for your audience. And people don't, people, people don't understand that when you contact busy people and you ask them to write about you, you're asking a lot from them and that's probably the worst first impression that you could have yeah. for anyone. I'm probably in the 20 to 40 emails a day of people, well, you know, probably 800, but of those, 20 to 40 asking me to review their portfolio. Don't know them, never met them, don't know anything about their work, don't know who they are. Want me to, like, sorry, I gotta stop the campaign, I gotta set the camera down, I'm gonna open my laptop and review this person who I'd never known, work right. for 30, 40 minutes, and then write them a nice expose about the things they could do to improve and how, like even when you're saying it, it sounds ridiculous. But, you, but it happens when you're every sitting there day. and you have nothing, it seems like a good thing to do. I mean, I was talking to uh, Neil Strauss about this and he was telling me he gets like 50 emails a day from people offering to buy him a cup of coffee to talk to him about <laughs> stuff. And he's like, I can afford my own coffee. Like you, that's, that's not an enticing offer for me. Like what, what are you at, how, are, how is writing money. about you or publicizing your work in the interests of the person you're pitching. And once you sort of fundamentally shift that, uh, that understanding, it becomes a lot easier to get attention because you're no longer asking for favors, you're doing favors. And that's how I've always thought about marketing and it's, it's been pretty effective. So that is about as concrete advice as I could possibly put in a nutshell. And I didn't even do it actually, <laughs> I did all the work. But that to me is so fundamental and so botched I mean, it's constantly botched just by evidence of what is in my inbox and yours and, and probably a lot of you folks at home have the and same thing. I think it comes from a good place, but people don't understand, like, they're, they're like, well, everyone's slamming the door in my face, like I'm not getting a shot. And they don't understand that they're essentially doing that to themselves because mm -hmm. why would the person, like, you're, you're asking them so much when you should be doing the opposite. You should be offering them so much. I love it. Beautiful. If you're just tuning in, I'm Chase Jarvis. We're here on another episode of Chase Jarvis Live uh, with my good friend, amazing author, um, blogger, media genius, Ryan Holiday. 
And uh, we're taking questions at hashtag CJLive. Uh, and there's a contest going on. If you hear anything you find that your social network or your graph might want to hear, then take these quotes, package them up, add uh, the URL to this page. I want to throw another thing in there, add at HP Print. I want to thank those folks for supporting what it is that we do here. Um, and that and or CJ, hashtag CJLive, if you can get it in there. If that's too long, then ditch the hashtag. But we would love to hear from you. We would love for you to broadcast these ideas that Ryan is espousing here on the stage out to your network. We hope that we would be adding value, which is exactly what we just finished talking about. How can you help the person in a way that entices them to promote what it is that you're doing? Right. And, and the reality is that the media environment has actually shifted in a way where it is in their interest to write about you. Like, blogs have to post X amount of times a day. There's no limit on how much they can publish. And when they do publish, they make money from doing so. Like, if you think about it, if, if you, if, like, let's say you're an amazing photographer and somehow your work gets put in a slideshow on the Huffington Post, that, those 20 page views multiplied by 1,000 is a lot of money for them. And you, you want to think about how you can, inst instead of trying to get someone like Chase who writing about you is a favor, try to find someone who writing about you benefits them. And then they're, they're not only going to write about you once, they're going to write about you a bunch of times because they benefit from it. Right. One thing that I think is a really good way of doing that for someone who is really busy is introducing them to a person that that person would find valuable. Right. Like, uh, I think, was it Tim that introduced us? I think so, yeah. So that's a, like a gift, a, a sort of, there's a, there's a cultural currency that you can help someone by introducing them to, say, the, the, perhaps the most valuable person in my network is person X, and I want you to write about my thing. I would talk to this person and say, hey, there's this guy I'm a big fan of. He's writing incredible work. I would love to introduce you. Person X is like, that guy would be awesome to know. I would love that. It, it doesn't even have to be people. Like you can totally, but I'm just like, I'm trying to find right. an example. But. Like so, it's like let's say you want X blog to write about you. Well, what if you gave them five stories that weren't about you first over the preceding five months? Now, when you shoot them a note that says like, "Hey, I have a new project out," are they going to be a lot more likely to consider it? Yes, because you've been adding value to them, and they know that you're you sort of you understand how the site works. You mm -hmm. understand. What, what gets attention and what doesn't get attention, and you're not gonna give them a dud. And that's what these people are really afraid of. Like, no one on the internet wants to write about something and see that it got zero comments and zero page views. It's called um, Warnock's Dilemma. There's actually like an old Usenet term for it. But no one wants to do something that flops. Not that, not that flopping is expensive, but like it costs time, and people don't wanna do that. So if you can prove that you're not going to risk that for them, they're going to be a lot more receptive to, to, to you and your yeah, content. I, I love getting tips. You know, right. it's fun. Here's something. It's a gift, basically. The, the, the way that I, I feel like made an initial impact in my sphere was to be doing like behind the scenes stuff 10 years before it was cool to do it. Right. First, I was vilified. But what I was trying to do was like, hey, this is going to be common knowledge here in the not too distant future. So this is what I'm doing. Here's how I'm doing it. And what I was essentially trying to do is to share knowledge. And that is a gift in and of itself. And then if I shared something enough and someone it made an impact on someone, if at some point in the future, I had a book and said, oh man, you know, I love your work. 
Um, and this is something that I'm trying to do, and you know, I've given you this information in the past and I hope it was helpful. That is an opportunity to have this sort of a beautiful reciprocal. There's also a word for that, I forget what it is, but I think of it as give everything and ask nothing in return. I mean, it's the same strategy. You're working for successful people. Like, how, how do you rise up in a company? Give things to your boss that makes your boss look good. And then all of a sudden, you're someone that they trust, that they depend on and they lean on because you add value and you make their job easier. I think you look at like, the media the same way. How do you make them look good? How do you make their jobs easier? Then every once in a while, you slip in your own shit. <laughs> um, again, thanks for those folks who are writing in on the, on the Twitter. I'm going to go to the studio audience here, and we're going to get a question from Mr. Holiday. Anyone out there got a question? I'd love to see a hand in the air. Yep, go ahead. Back there, Mr. Van Leeuwen. Nice to see you in the audience today. This is an amazing architect here in Seattle, and we, we are graced with your presence, my good man. Hi. Thanks for having me. Honored to be here. Uh, Ryan, one of the things that you started off with um, talking uh, to us a little bit about uh, departing from your university studies and uh, going to, to bigger opportunities, right. really. Uh, one of the things that interests me is that all those network connections you get in school, all of the um, the, the connections you make and people you get to know, how did you substitute that in the path you took? Those are all valuable things, and, and I, I assume that you found other avenues to get those same benefits. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting, because on, on the one hand, like, yes, you, you have access to professors and other students and peers, but at the same time, like, your college peer group is gonna be a lot of people who are exactly like you, and part of a valuable network is diversity. And so, like for me, it actually, I felt like being out of school gave me more opportunities to meet people and do new things because I was sort of like, I, I was in a unique situation where like sort of I was, um, I was the odd man out in a, in a good way, if that makes sense. But um, I kind of looked at working for these people just like you would being a student, right? Like how can you, how can, like you're getting paid to do X, how can you treat your, your boss like a, like a professor? How do, you, how do you get office hours for him? How do you ask for feedback all the time? How do you, how do you sort of grade yourself constantly? I, I always looked at what I was doing, even though I was no longer in school and I was learning, or I, I wasn't like technically learning, I saw myself as being, as, as being a student still. Like I, I'm very bullish on the, the kind of apprenticeship model for learning and education. And so, like, when I'm saying that when I left school, I felt like my education started, it was like, now I'm in a classroom of, of, of one person. I'm the only student, and I'm, now I have direct access to all these people who I can learn from. And That's if, a good student-teacher ratio, by the way. One yeah, one. right, it's fantastic. One-to-one, <laughs> one. good student-teacher ratio. But I think, and then cultivating your network and, and seeking uh, suggestions and ideas from your peers, it, is a really fundamental part of what it is. You know, whether they're, you know, I think the best example, we'll talk about something that's really concrete, is you went to work for Tucker Max. Right. So those of you who don't know Tucker Max, Tucker Max is, uh, I hope they serve beer in hell, multi-million uh, copy bestseller. Um, edgy, Tucker's a great guy. And how did you get that job, first of all? And then, Two, what did you do with it once you got it? Because I think this, if you all folks out there in the internet world and here in the studio audience, you can take this sort of pattern and apply it to your own life. So give me the background. Yeah, no, I, and this actually goes to exactly what you were saying about education. So I got my first job with my first author because I was a, a student and I was writing for a college newspaper and I said, 
I want to meet this person. I want to like get to know them. I think there's a lot I could learn from them. What if I wrote an article about him for this college newspaper? And it was through, like he answered my emails because I was a journalist and I was a student. Whereas if I was just some kid college dropout, he probably wouldn't. So I do think there's a lot of value in being a student because like students sort of get special access to things. Everyone's really open to helping and aiding students um, because they're sort of like, I don't know, maybe they don't see them as competition or something or they, they see a little bit of themselves in it. So I, I leveraged it into one relationship and then I sort of focused very intently on adding value and working hard and having initiative. And like, I mean, I've since hired a lot of young people myself, and I think the difference between me in that situation and some of the ones I've hired and that haven't worked out for me is like, I had this opportunity and I was goddamn gonna turn it into something, and I wasn't gonna let go until it, it, it was something. Like, um, I'm, I'm sure you've hired a bunch of people and you're like, why do I want you to be more successful than you seem to want to be? Like, why do I want this? for you more than you want it for yourself. And uh, for, for me working for Tucker and then the other authors that I've worked for, it was like, maybe they didn't see themselves as signing up to be like my mentor and that they were gonna teach me everything they knew, but that's what I was gonna get from them regardless of whether that's what they signed up for, you know? But that's beautiful and you did it by adding value. So I'm gonna come, I'm gonna work my ass off for you. I'm going to start, it started off by you writing an article about them, right. then they got to know you, then you say, I love this, I'm gonna to continue to work as hard as I possibly can to, to change your landscape. And if, if I learn something along the way, hey, that's great, but you had a secret agenda. Right, I mean, I think the <laughs> ideal situation is you're learning and you're getting paid to learn, and that's how I set it up for myself. Beautiful. Yeah. Again, I'm Chase Jarvis, I'm here with Ryan Holiday. For you folks on the internet who are just joining us, you can ask questions of Ryan or myself uh, at hashtag CJLive, and if you hear something that you like, because this guy's been dropping the quotes, uh, use that quote, at HP Print, and the URL of the show, and we will be giving away a signed copy of your new book, which is what I'd like to turn our attention to okay. right now. So um, this, this is your book. We talked about the cover. It's beautiful. Nice moves. Trust me, I'm lying. We talk about the title, but Confessions of a Media Manipulator. Right. So that doesn't sound all that positive. I guess not. And there's probably a lot of folks in here, there's, there's like some, there's some drama around you being on the show. I, I sort of said, this is probably my most controversial guest. Right. One of the reasons that I called you controversial is because you told me a story once about getting a billboard, and this, this may be in the book, and if it is or not. It is, yeah. So, so he uh, bought a billboard for a small amount of time and then put the, an American Apparel ad up there and then paid someone to deface the ad Oh, no, this is a Tucker Max billboard. Oh, but it's, I've, it, it's happened with American Apparel too, but this one's uh, got a it. Tucker Max billboard. So then paid someone to deface the billboard, then photographed that billboard through the windshield of a car as he was driving by to look like a snapshot, and then leaked that photo to the media, and the media published it, which that takes the, the billboard from being on the side of a road and puts it in the New York Times, or on a blog, or on Engadget, or whatever. Now that is brilliant. That's why he's sitting on the show right and here. Then the, and then the best part is a bunch of other people saw those stories and then started doing it themselves. And then there was mass vandalization all over the country. <laughs> <laughs> so that's where the title Confessions of a Media Manipulator comes from. But that to me, there, there is baked into that, that concept we just walked through is genius on so many levels. 
how did you have the idea? Do you still do it? Is it, is it important to you? And what kind of a culture does that say we live in? Yeah, so I mean, I think confessions, there's a double meaning there, right? It's like, here's what I do and here's how you can do it. And then sort of here's like, you know, not an apology, but here's sort of a, um, an admission of some guilt in some, in some sense. But I guess with that idea, I was in a position where I was working for someone who he didn't care what people said about him so long as they talked about him. Like it, it was sort of an ideal position when, when you're just starting out or you're trying to make a name for yourself, you've got nothing to lose because the alternative is obscurity and that's really scary for artists or authors or any project, right? The worst thing that could happen is you release something and nobody says anything about it. Sometimes the best thing that could happen is a nationwide boycott or whatever because like people are talking about it and it means you're polarizing and if you've got one side of the country that hates you, you've probably got another side of the country that loves you. And so for him we realized that like chatter, whether it was good or bad, seemed to spread the word and spread the brand. And so we kind of thought like how could we do something that's funny, that would get attention, that would turn, like we didn't have a big marketing budget, right? So if we wanted, we didn't have the money to get an ad in some of these blogs or in some of these newspapers. So the idea was how can we make the ads so interesting and then make the reaction to the ads newsworthy enough that the content becomes news? And that's something American Apparel does really well. I'm sure right now if you, if I asked you to think about maybe the most, your favorite American Apparel ad or uh, even an American Apparel, even an American Apparel ad, the one you would think of, you probably didn't actually see on a billboard or in the publication that it ran because you saw it as content. You saw someone else writing about it. You saw a friend posting it on Twitter. You saw people chattering about it. And that's, that's how I see advertising as being really effective when what you do is so interesting and so cool that it stops being advertising and it starts being media. That there, that almost every sort of major win in my career has been on that sort of tip. It hasn't been necessarily with the intent to deceive, but it's been through making something and giving something to people that was very, very unexpected. Right. Launching the, the D90 for Nikon, I was just excited to have the first ever HD DSLR camera in my hands, and what right. did I want to do? I wanted to make a behind-the-scenes film. But that, in itself, was a gift to folks, because they got to saw not only how the campaign was made, but what it was like to, to be a part of that thing that launching that technology which has changed filmmaking forever so it's right. huge you know win for me right and I really didn't even know it was happening because it came from a pretty good place I'm trying to make something happen to give something a perspective that wasn't necessarily there and where did you read it you didn't necessarily read it in the New York Times you read it on Engadget Gizmodo all of the, the top 10 largest blogs in the world which I'd rather be there than CNN yeah, I think people are so consumed with like sort of avoiding controversy, mm -hmm. but the reality is controversy is what the media loves to write about. And so I don't shy away from those things. I deliberately manufacture them or aim for them because that's the fastest way to get attention. And sometimes that urgency is, is necessary. Got it. I'm going to go to the phones. Give me a second. We had a bunch of questions flying in. So thank you guys so much for writing in. I don't remember which that camera right there is live. Um, Cordy Walker says, how did Ryan begin marketing to best-selling authors when he was just 19? Where did he get his initial knowledge? So you have to, again, throw a bone out there. You said right. earlier you started writing for them, but making content and writing about them, are making, sorry, making contact 
and writing about them are different things. Yeah, I mean, I made the stuff that I do up as I went along. Like I, I Spoken learned it like on, I learned it on the job, and I, I couldn't have called up Stephen King and said like, let me, let me work for you. I'll do your book marketing because he doesn't need me. But I went and I found in, in Tucker, like I met Tucker before his book came out. Um, I met Tim before his book came out. I, a lot of the authors I've worked with, I, I met when they were not what they are now. And so that made them a lot more willing to take a chance on someone who said, like when I'm saying like, here's an idea I have, I think it could work. Well, it's better than nothing. So like I got to experiment cheaply with people with whom failure was cheap and we learned together and we grew together and then now here I am. So like you don't, I think a lot of people say like, I want to be this and then they think they start at that level or close to that level. It's, that's not how it's worked for me. It's been, it's been being totally okay to start with nothing and knowing that like I've, I've got what it takes to work my way up to, to where I want to be. Beautiful. Phones number two. Uh, Steven Burkhart asks, when you first started at American Apparel, was it your solution for their problems that got you hired, or was it a specific skill set? Um, I can't really talk about exactly what it was. Uh, it's sort of a confidential uh, thing, <laughs> but it was a very specific thing that they were having trouble with that I happened to know exactly how to solve because I'd done it for these other authors, just like just for fun. It's like, hey, like uh, I had this idea, Robert. I'm going to try it. Okay. And then when it turns out that that you know he's he's uh, talking to Dove and Dove has the same problem, he knows exactly who to call to work on that thing. And for the books that we're giving away uh, to the sign, the signed copies of the books that are going out to the internet for the people that are retweeting this, we're going to give away a couple of those case studies. Okay. Yeah. Um, actually, you just said okay, but you told me I was I could do that. Am I doing something bad? No, no, no. Yeah, that's okay. that's awesome. Okay, so you'll also get if you're one of the folks that are retweeting madly out there and driving traffic to the site, you'll get uh, specific step by step on some of these some of these case studies that got you to the role that you're in right now. Yeah, these are case studies for two big media stunts that I did that got you know millions of page views, millions of impressions, got covered everywhere. And I think cumulatively, one costs zero dollars and the other costs two hundred dollars uh, in in total overhead to get done. That's the kind of budgets that a lot of my me and my artist friends like to work with. Right, because you don't. I, I mean, it, it almost <laughs> makes you more creative. Right. Than if you have a two hundred thousand dollar ad budget. Right. Because then all of a sudden you think you need to do big fancy things, and sometimes those are the most boring things. Yeah, big and fancy is mostly boring, right? Right. How about to the audience? Any other questions out there? Put a hand in the air, and I will call on you. Like, wait, what is it? Wave your hands in the air like you just don't care. Any questions out there? Yeah, go ahead, shoot. Oh, you got to use the mic, my friend. Thank you very much. Hey, Norton, can I trouble you for some more coffee when you get All two right. seconds? Thanks, buddy. Hey, um, is there a line out there that you can cross, or is just like anything's fair game if it gets page views? And uh... oh yeah, of course, there's a line, and you got to know who your audience is and what their tolerance for certain things are. So, like, I happen to work for people, some of the people who have very high tolerance for for those things, but I always I always tell everyone I work for like, it's better to get good press if you can have it, but sometimes you can't, and then you've got to do something interesting. Like how do you, if, if no one's paying attention to you, how do you do something that immediately turns everyone's eyes onto you? And you know, sometimes just like doing a cool photo is not enough. It's got to be a photo that makes people say like, holy shit, 
and then everyone, then you have an audience, then you have, you've sort of built a name for yourself. Now it's about, you know, doing something with that that's maybe probably a little bit more positive. But uh, I, I don't think anyone wants to be pandering all the time because that's a monster you've got to constantly feed and it gets exhausting. Yeah, that, that to me sounds, do you have a follow-up question there? Okay, like, to me that sounds like a, the start of a treadmill that you don't want to get on. Right, right, right. And then as soon as you get off of it, it all stops. Yeah, you don't want to, it's not like you're not trying to feed the bullshit meter. Right. right? You're trying to make something that gets noticed and usually something that gets noticed is different. You know, that's one of the things when, when uh, I think about the work that I want to make or I think about sharing my ideas with the world, I'd say that it's not about being better, or incrementally better than the next photographer, the next writer. It's about being different. Differentiation in a marketplace that's crowded and noisy is the thing that you, will get noticed. You want to say like this thing or this person is not like all those other things. That's sort of your first step in marketing. And you want to, you got to think about, so there's a lot of really interesting studies on like sort of what emotions are spreadable or shareable. And like, so what they find is that high valence emotion. So the more powerful the emotion, whatever it is that a piece of work or content or story generates, the more it's going to be spread and shared. So like if some, like, for instance, uh, they did this study of the New York Times that found that the number one predictor of an article making the most popular list, like on the side of the New York Times, was the amount of anger that an article provokes. So that's great, but obviously the New York Times isn't going to spend all day trying to make people angry because all of a sudden now <laughs> anger is not that interesting because unexpectedness happens to be, like surprise, happens to be another very viral emotion. So, um, and then what's an unviral emotion? Um, sadness is an unviral emotion. Um, so they, like, there's, there's uh, some, some cool analysis of like, um, someone broke down, like, you know those really popular slideshows of like pictures of Detroit? Like I'm sure you've shot yeah, Detroit. Yep. So, I was just there two weeks ago. Yeah, so what they've found, and, and this is weird, and I guess a, a little bit ominous too, photos with people in them, of, in Detroit, so like a homeless person who's suffering in Detroit, that doesn't make a Huffington Post slideshow. That doesn't get on in Time Magazine and the New York Times. But a photo of like an abandoned building, that does really well. And, w and why is that? Well, the, the abandoned building is kind of like, whoa, that's cool. And then, you know, a homeless person or like Not a, a stray dog or someone suffering, what, even though that's the exact same thing, like that abandoned building has those people in it, one makes you sad, and no one wants to send a photo to someone else that makes them sad. It, or not sure. as much as they want to send a photo that makes them say like, holy shit, that's really cool. Right. And so um, you, you want to think about the reaction that, that your work is going to elicit from people, and then ask yourself, does this lend itself to sharing? Um, that's not to say you should only do work that, that lends itself to sharing, but don't go pitching a, a don't go pushing hard a, a work that's going to be inherently unviral because you're not going to get the same ROI as if you push something that let's say makes people really angry. Yeah, and there's a huge paradox for documentary photographers and filmmakers for you know because th there's often the the content is really a challenge to to deal with to swallow to yet and they're they're very very important stories that right. need to get need to get out there. So. You know, as a as a creative, you got to think about is that is trying to make your 
film about, uh, and maybe Chris Jordan, for example, a good friend of mine, he's working on a film right now called The Midway Project, which if you're not familiar with it, you need to go. Chris has been on the show before, amazing artist. Um, so getting the, the uh, film about the floating garbage heap off the coast of Midway Island that the birds are eating lighters and plastic and then dying, it's not really a viral thing. But so your, your answer would be to try and find a different way to promote that that's probably not viral or find the, the positive side of that same story that, right. is, that is something that's empowering. And look, I, I've done this on both sides of the equation. So I've done it as a marketer. I've had to like have the tough conversation with say like, look, I know this is what you're passionate about, but it just it doesn't resonate with people. So that's not the angle that we can go with. You, you, you've got to decide, do you want no one to see this or do you want to maybe do something you're not totally comfortable with and get an audience and then surprise them with how fair or balanced your take on it is and then with my own book like i sat down i was i was sort of very dissatisfied with the system and and i, I was really angry about it and i really wanted to sort of blow the whole thing wide open and uh, i i sat down with some friends and then later with the publisher and they were like Ryan, look, that's, that's really interesting and cool, but no one wants to read an academic book about how the media works. Even though that's what I wanted to write, um, I, I had to sort of take my own medicine and go like, okay, if I want people to read those things, I've got to bury it in packaging that makes it interesting and attractive and relevant to people. So like, there's a reason that the cover looks the way that it does, um, because I'm trying to say like, this is an exciting book, this is not like those other books, and even though maybe like my dream would have been to write some leather bound, you know, <laughs> academic book or whatever, that's just not the best way to get the message in front of people. So, so then to surprise and delight them and they open it and they read the words. And you know, that's, I think when people out there in the world, I'm just taking a stab here, maybe even in the audience here in studio, like, wow, media manipulator, like this guy's dangerous. Right. And you're like one of the least dangerous, nicest yeah. guys that I you gotta know. Meet, you gotta Certainly meet the, people where they are. Right. And um, you gotta meet people where they are. You should write that down if you didn't. Uh, you, you've, you don't have to believe in the rules. You don't have to agree with the rules, but that doesn't mean that you don't have to abide by the rules. That's the way I see it. There's, there's a, yeah. I feel like that when you can get someone to look at your stuff, you grab their attention, if there's something that is, that is attention worthy, when you turn past page one, that's where the meat, that's where the super stickiness has to be. So you, yeah. And that's, I think with the book, you know, um, I got an advanced copy of your book, which I was very grateful for, and I read it in two sittings. You know, and the only reason I ended sitting one is because I had to get on a different plane. Right. <laughs> And to me, that I was very unsure of what it is that you were going to write because all that I'd talked with you about, and you and Tucker um, down in California last time we were together, was all these crazy hacks that you'd done. Um, and so I was pleased to find out that this is like super actionable. And there's also like you, you, you put the media on trial in large part. Totally. You're not like he talks a lot about blogs being like this page view centric, this is how we make money, this is the, like, it's, it's not so pretty. No, so def definitely not. Just for a second. Yeah, and, and you've gotta be, you don't, you don't have to love it, but that's reality. And you're not going to change that reality unless you understand it and you master it first. Like you've gotta, you've gotta, you've gotta know the rules before you can change the rules. Um, and that's sort of what I, what I ended up thinking with the book. Like someone really smart was telling me like, 
it, I was like complaining, like, I, I don't know if I want to do this. Like, it's not what my dream was or whatever. And he was like, it doesn't matter what the title is. What matters is that the book is good and you're proud of the book. How you get people to read it is sort of irrelevant. It's just a means to an end. And I think that's, a, that's probably a good analogy to marketing, too. Um, maybe you don't love these things. Maybe you wish you could just hand your final product off and it would be popular, but... The sound of music. He's like, right. hey, there we go. You can wish all you want, but that doesn't make it so. Well said. Back to the phones. There's a couple other folks I've seen. Uh, the internets are afire. Um, a question from Robbie Dew. Uh, Ryan Holiday, what were you doing at age 18? Uh, nothing. <laughs> I, was, I was sitting on my hands waiting for an opportunity. Like, I, I mean, I wasn't waiting for it to happen to me, but I was like working towards it and knowing that I didn't have it yet but I was ready to pounce when it came. And you're flipping over rocks and meeting people. Like, what, what, what's the, what does that look I mean, like? I, I was in school. I was reading everything I could. I was talking to people. I was emailing people. And I was just waiting for my, you know, waiting to get called up to the big leagues or whatever. Well, the big leagues you have reached with this person, this book right here. Uh, it's not in stores yet, but it's for pre-sale. We talked about yeah, this. Yeah, it's pre So pre-sale uh, is bullshit. It's a weird thing, right? right? You go on the internet, you buy something. And it's not, it never shows up. You're like, wait right. a minute. And then you go look again at Amazon. It says, this book ships on August 28th or whatever. This book happens to ship on the 19th, 19th of yeah. July. So how do we, uh, what I'd love to do, Ryan is, a, is an incredibly dear friend. This book is a must read for everybody who's paying attention to right now. And so what is it, how can we help? Is it yeah, I mean, on my site, so like I hate, I read a lot of books and I hate pre-ordering books. I don't think I've ever done it. So. Um, do what we hate. Well, no, that's what that's that's sort of the I think I, I again I had to take my own medicine. It was like, look, if I don't like to do this, I'm not going to sit there and ask people to do me a favor. So I put together these case studies that sort of explain, you know, how how it works, like extra advice. There's like a reading list. Um, there's like a, a sort of a slideshow version of the book, like bonus materials that like um, for pre-ordering different numbers of the books, I'll give you those things. You just have to send me the receipt. It's all on my site at um, ryanholiday.net. Beautiful. But like, again, you're, it's, it's much easier to sort of go with the flow than to fight it against it. So if people are not interested in pre-ordering, which I totally understand, I've got to make it in their interests. Uh, you got you to meet people where they are. That is a good quote. That is a good quote. I got one other uh, question up there that I'm having a hard time reading because my camera's right there in front of it. But no, that's not a question. That it's is the same a, question. we have the book trailer video is what it says on my little prompt right there. <laughs> All right. That's, man, sorry I was up late. Uh, shall we watch the book trailer video? Let's do it. Let's do it. Take it away. The people who make stuff appear on that television the right there. The internet is full of liars, cheats, and charlatans who want only one thing your attention. Page views and publicity control what you think you know, from stories on the internet to the news on TV. The system is completely defenseless. Manipulators like me spread lies and generate fake outrage daily. If you were interested in media manipulation, here's one way. Start small. Send your story to a tiny personal blog from an alias email. They get an exclusive, you get an outlet. You then take that exclusive link and send another fake email to an even larger site. Like links in a chain, you move your story along to larger and more influential sites. Your original idea builds momentum with each link until finally 
your story becomes the story. This is one way unreal news becomes reality. This information is dangerous. It's up to you how you use it. My name is Ryan Holiday. Trust me, I'm lying. That's pretty dope. Should we cheer? Can we apply for that? <laughs> I like the meta layer that at the end the guy says, I'm Ryan Holiday. Yeah. And it wasn't you for sure. Uh, Trust me, I'm lying. Then he tells the little, yeah. Yeah, well that guy has a cooler voice than me, so I was, <laughs> I was willing to let him pretend to be. Awesome, beautiful. Well, so again, that's when I talked earlier about differentiate rather than try and be a little bit better. I've not seen a trailer for a book until Tim did his. Right. And Tim did a great job with his four-hour body. He did. Um, and so kudos to you for pulling off. What I, that's something I would have been proud to make. For yeah, sure. no, the, the company that I worked with, they're called uh, Simply Film, mm -hmm. and they made what I think is maybe the best book trailer that I've seen. And like, I know it seems weird, like saying about my own book. Like a lot of people go like, oh yeah, well, I, I haven't seen many book trailers. And I think that's kind of the point because like authors make a lot of book trailers. You just don't see them because <laughs> nobody cares, right? Like why would you watch a book trailer? Um, and so when I, when I sat down with them to make this, what I, I wanted to, again, to make something that says, this is not like these other things. And trailers are essentially advertisements. So why would someone willingly watch an advertisement? It's gotta be interesting, it's gotta catch their attention, and it's gotta be in their interest to do so. So I wanted to make it kind of like a little bit of a story, I wanted it to explain the book, and I wanted it to sort of contextualize everything, and I think it, I think it does that. So Beautiful. I'm pretty pleased. Shifting gears, yeah. one of the things that I love best, again, I, I've mentioned a couple previous episodes where you give people really concrete, actionable to-do lists. Right. And the, there's a secret, that is not very openly discussed, and that is, well, there's a, you know, do you know um, Austin from uh, the, the author, Steal Like an Artist? Uh, I know great, the book, yeah. Okay, great, great book, great author. Um, should check that out. But steal like an artist, and, and one of the things that you can steal is an understanding of something. Right. You can call it studying or learning, or you can call it stealing, so whatever sells books, we'll right. call it whatever sells books. But, when you, for example, talked about hiring someone to do something, so you'll pay for that person to come in and make a book trailer. Right. Now you know how to make a book trailer. Right. Uh, a publicist, for example, you watch all the things that they do, you hire them, and then you say, ah, I have a little piece of knowledge there, so. Right, like I think you think, sometimes you think like you're hiring someone to work for you. Well, a really great way to get access to someone and to learn their secrets is to pay them to work for you when really you're just sort of paying for access to their skills or knowledge and then you're going to learn from them. And sometimes it's the other way. Sometimes they don't even know that they're paying you and what you're doing is stealing their secrets. But um, I think stealing an understanding of something, yeah. and, like we can all learn from our own experience, but like we only have a finite amount of experiences. So if you really want to scale and you really want to move fast, you've got to learn from other people's experiences. So like the book trailer is a great example. I saw Tim do an awesome book trailer. I saw it move the needle for his book. So I thought, okay, I'm gonna do a book trailer. What about his worked well? What didn't work well? And what was the secret to its success? 
And what I found for him is that, and he talked about this on your show actually, was he had distribution for that thing. So a lot of authors think that the trailer is what matters. So they, they spend a lot of money on the trailer and then they put it on their Facebook account and it gets 200 views from their closest family and friends, which Sound is not a good use of you know, $10,000 to, to pay for it to design a book trailer. So what I thought about when I was doing this one was how can I guarantee that it has, how can I use, so the reason people don't talk about books before they're out is that there's nothing to talk about, right? Like how would people talk about this book? It doesn't exist, they don't know what's in it. So I thought the trailer would be a really great way to sort of create an excuse to talk about the book. It's called a, right. a pseudo event. Like I designed this thing partially for customers or for consumers, but really I designed it for the media. And so they would have something to write about. And that's how it works. And you've got to, you've got to make excuses and make handles for people to pick up your work. And what I did in, in my case was like, I knew you know, these three sites would publish a story about the, the trailer when it came out. And if I didn't have those lined up, I wouldn't have done it. That is brilliant. And that's when I think about the, again, the large cross-section of the audience is the culturally curious as photographers, filmmakers, designers, a lot of uh, young entrepreneurs. And that key, that, that piece that we're talking about right here is the, it's like the missing link between making something and actually getting it out there. You ha there. There's actually a plan. How many of you at home have actually asked yourself these questions? Who is going to be interested in this. Right, How, who are you making it for? Yeah, who are you making it for? First of all, you should probably be making it for yourself, but who's right. the audience for this thing? So, and is that audience, where are they? How can I get them to pick it up? I don't know very many artists that think like that, and the belief is that as flighty artists go around not thinking about shit like that, that couldn't be further from the truth because everyone's sitting in a dark basement apartment going, I just want to have my work out there. Right. You got, who, is, who are you making this for? How are they going to see it? And why are they going to care? And again, you're not, I think oh, you were saying this last night, it's a given that you're making good things that you care about and are passionate about. Yeah, you can't about. make crap and expect the results. Right. Um, so once you have that, then the sort of the, the next level of, of thinking and sort of being your own publicist and being your own marketer, your own chief marketing officer is, who is this for? Why am I doing it? Like, uh, I, I don't even know if it's true anymore, but I'm going to repeat it so much because it's a great idea. I heard that at Amazon, which is, you know, right down the street, one of their mandatory policies is that if you want to, like, launch a new program or service or product inside Amazon, you have to write the press release first. So you have to go to your boss and say, here's what we're making and here's how we're going to sell it. Because you don't make something and then at the end go like, all right, now how do I get this in front of people? You've got to do that from the very beginning. You've got to be vertically integrated. You've got to be designing the product with the marketing angles, with the press release and the headline about the work in your mind's eye, like before you put a pen to paper or you pick up a camera or whatever it is that you're doing. You've got to think about how this is going to sell and how it's going to be communicated to people. And if you can't do that, you're not ready to start yet. That's not to say that the idea is bad. You're just not ready to start yet. Right. That is super, super good advice. Very powerful. And I hope that's going to be rewound and rewound and rewound and watched over and over because that, that is another one of those things I feel like that is a gap between when someone is sitting there going, how did that person do that? 
there's the, a, a, a lack of understanding of having, they call it building it with the end in mind. Right, totally. And some things work out where you don't have the end in mind and just like happy, cool, meandering success. But nine out of 10 things, especially at an entrepreneurial or, a, or an artistic creative level, it's like you, you have the thing that you want it to look like and be like at the end, the story that you want to tell. Right. And between, there's actually a name for it. I think I heard Ira Glass talk about it. It's called the creative gap. That time, and this is when you're, like, you're honing your skills. The thing that you can see in your mind's eye, you have to have skills good enough such that when you actually say, I'm done, it looks like the thing that you had in your mind's eye. Right. And you have to keep yourself on task and on vision. And at the end, if, you, if the thing that you made looked exactly like the thing that you envisioned, then there's a zero gap. And that's what we're all striving for. At the beginning, when you're taking pictures, right, like, I want it to look like this one picture. And it, it looks like shit. So I got I to gotta go back to the drawing board. There's a, there's a technical basis for needing to be able to do the thing that you said you're going to do. But there's also this other side. Yeah, there's a German word that Robert Greene talks about in the 33 Strategies War, and I'm not going to embarrass myself by trying to pronounce it, but essentially it translates to like a fingertip feel, and like Napoleon's a great example. Like He could stare at a map where the battle was going to be, and then he would go, the battle will end here, and he would know sort of intuitively how it was all going to go, what it was all leading towards, and where it would end, and if you're not thinking about like a great example is like, so you're working on this thing, what is the headline, what is the opening day, what is the launch strategy, where is it all going? Because that's too important to leave to chance. Because if you leave it to chance, there's a chance that it might not happen. And probably a larger chance of it going that way than the way that you envisioned. Right. Predicting the future is hard, right? Yeah, abs absolutely. You don't want to leave your success up to random luck. Questions from the audience. I know I just surprised you and came out of left field here with that one, but I got, there's three. I'm going to try and get to all of you really quickly. Go ahead in the front row, and then Norton, we're going to go to the back. I don't know if you saw those other folks. Go ahead. Hi, Ryan. I'm David. Hey. Um, I wanted to hear if you had any other examples, like the billboard example, if you could share any of, anything like that with us. Uh, yeah, I mean, so... It's in the book. Yeah, I mean, it's, there's, in the <laughs> no, book, no, no. A, a, a quick example, like... Uh, online advertising is a great example of something that's run by nerds that is actually better run by creative people. So like, because you can track things online, people design advertisements based on how many clicks they get, how many views they do, and, and a lot of boring sort of Asperger-y metrics. And I design or I look for ads that are going to make people talk. So how can I put an ad on this website that people are going to notice when it's gone? How am I going to put an ad on this blog that people are going to talk about it in the comments? And sometimes I advertise on blogs knowing that their audience is very small, but the media reads that website and they are going to, as soon as it goes live, I have to wait 15 minutes before I get an email from a reporter asking me about American Apparel's newest ad campaign. Because they think it's everywhere, really it's just on this one tiny site that I spent $250 to to run the add-on for, for two hours. Beautiful. That's, that's we, I, you know, I, we call it hacking the system. Hacking has a, has a negative connotation, but it's really you're figuring out the way the media works. And whether you like it or not, it's not really, that's not the, the basis of our conversation today. If you don't like how it works, then you should go to a media awareness class and try and change that. But if you do understand how it works and you want to sort of get results, which that's, I noticed you've got a blurb from Tim on the back of your, um, your book. Ryan Holiday is part Machiavelli, part Ogilvy, and all results. The whiz kid 
who is the secret weapon you've never heard of. Like that is results of putting a $200 thing in a place where you know that the journalist for the New York Times is gonna go read it and then call you about it. I mean, another example, I've never done this, but I, I've heard people, they like to buy ads on like the, the Google search for like important people's names because they know people like to Google themselves and then they're going to see those ads that are directed <laughs> only towards them. So it's like, you want Mark Cuban to hire you, run an ad that says like, Mark Cuban, you should hire me under the Google search Mark Cuban and your audience is not the general public, it's one guy. Wow, <laughs> that's sweet. Back to the back corner there, I saw a hand up. Please, oh, uh, we I gotta have, get you I a mic. A there you go, in the middle there, yeah. Um, so all of the image that's being crafted around you feels very sensational, like the title of your book and Machiavelli and all this stuff. And I look at you and I feel like you're this kind of stand-up person, so I'm curious, who do you see yourself being in 10 years? That's who do a I see great, myself being great in 10 question. years? Uh, a gangster. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I, I don't know. Uh, that's not something, I mean, it's something I think about. I think people who have a very clear idea of exactly who they want to be in the future probably aren't like living their life well enough to really sort of be taking advantage of things like as they come, they're not li living in the moment. But I, I sort of, I, I feel like I have a good gut sense of who and where I want to be. And like, I know where my line is in terms of like, what I'm okay with doing and what I'm not okay with doing, and I know when it's like it's too much for me. So well, that's there's, there's, there's a part of a, this is confession. You, you said like right. I decided that I don't necessarily want to live this life. You know, when, in, in the blog post I wrote, you said like a lot of these things are really ethical ways of understanding the media to promote yourself. But there's some like little little back channel. And what you say in the book, and I'm going to take words out of your mouth, but I'm going to. It's it's part of this is not for me anymore. That's one of the reasons you wanted to write about it. Right. Yeah, totally. And um, so he really is as wholesome as he appears here on the stage. That's that's very nice, though. Thank you. <laughs> um, but yeah, the idea is you should know what's going on and you should know how it works, even if you're not comfortable doing all of it, because the last thing you want is someone else to do it to you and to have it catch you by surprise. Beautiful. Go to the back corner back there, please. And then the internet. If you're uh, interested in asking some questions or saying a quote. Uh, we're looking for your, uh, the, the old Twitter handle, and at HP Print, a link to this here page so we can drive your social graph to the page and join the conversation with Ryan. Um, we'll be giving away signed copies of his book and some case studies that are step-by-steps on how he pulled off some of these amazing media stunts. Back to you in the corner, hello. Hi, Chase. How are you? Hi, nice, Ryan. Good, Hi. nice to see you. Um, do you expect or have you had any negative media backlash from the book, or is that, I know that's all part of this web you're talking about, but I'm talking about actually being shut out by certain um, people. Only the ones you want to be shut out. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, it's a little early in the release to know, but um, I guess the irony is what would be the correct response to an expose or something that's very critical of you? <laughs> the correct response would be to ignore it. Um, so we'll see if that happens, but I'm guessing, I think, I think anticipating that I've built some things in the book that are very difficult to ignore. That's, that's actually kind of the problem with, I think, a lot of books of criticism is the author goes like, well, my ideas are so good, people will have to care. But like, let's say if I wrote a very like vague, condescending criticism of some site, why would they, why would they dignify that with a response? But if I say like, you know, I have proof that this person did this and 
this is why I think this like something should happen to them. Now it's an accusation, and they've they've got to respond. So I think part of the the sort of the extremeness of the book is that I felt like some of these things were too important to ignore, and I I really want to make sure that that doesn't happen. Yeah, it was like, it was like there was a it was very much a call to action. I feel like that's when when you were in the middle of writing and. You told me about the book, and in a way, there's like there's just a lot of information in this book that people actually don't know. People don't know that a lot of the major blogs they'll publish 40 times a day, even if it's like total crap, recycled information, so that they can get page views and make right. more money. And they don't really care about the quality of the audience, the lack of like the engagement and that stuff. And that's not a thing that that's known. I mean, whether it's you know someone who's our age or or older or much younger. They think that that's the news when, in reality, that's just manufactured to get to get page views. Totally, and I my philosophy is like, don't do stuff half-ass and don't do things that can be ignored. Um, and so I, I try to do that with the book. I try to do that with everything, but I definitely try to do it with the book. That's probably a good quote to retweet too. If you folks are out there and you want to score a sign break, I don't believe in doing anything half-ass. Right. Uh, let's see. We have a couple of the items I wanted to cover. I, there was just a flurry of hands in the in the audience. Any other questions before we go back to the phone? Yes, sir. Let's make sure that man right there gets a microphone. So uh, you said that you've worked with people who have a high tolerance for kind of controversy and right. stuff. Have you ever worked with anyone who has a low tolerance? And yeah, I mean, absolutely. First off, what I specialize is in those things. So I think you've said this before. Don't work with clients who don't mesh with your philosophy. Uh, because you're going to be asking them to do things that they don't want to do. They're going to be asking you to do things that you don't specialize in, and that's just a recipe for disaster. But um, yeah, I mean, like I'm working with an author right now who's like sort of he's a finance journalist and he's sort of very traditional and by the books, and that's awesome because it makes it it's very clear what is okay and what's not okay, and it's the same the same general forces and economics that I talk about in the book apply, just how I address them is different. Yeah, so there's part of you, I mean, it's not willing to work with anybody, but you can apply your sort of alchemy right. to a wide variety. And you know, the same is true for creatives that, gets hired, that get hired. You wouldn't want to work for a brand or a company or do a fine art project that didn't resonate with you. And yet, you know, sometimes you got to walk away, but sometimes that's a great creative challenge. Totally. Or when I have to find a way to make the work that I'm doing fit, and usually those can produce dramatic results because they're, go back to our earlier conversation, there's like surprise and delight, and there's an element of unexpectedness, which I think is so super important. It's a lot easier, actually, when they have a low tolerance because it just means this whole sort of set of tactics is off limits. Great, so I'm going to go to the phones. Scott. Earball, so that's a great Twitter handle. Uh, if you have an opportunity to do something better, why would you stick with doing what everybody else does? I don't get it. You get it. Um, I think if you're, if Scott, if your question is is directed to us, the um, I think one of the things that I'm advocating is differentiation. That's probably the most important thing, especially in a creative marketplace that you don't want to get sucked into looking or feeling or smelling like, like anybody I else. I think I may have said that. I think that was a quote from earlier, <laughs> but I'm not sure. That's probably a bad sign if we're saying things and then, and then we us? don't even remember it. Or are we just making shit up and pulling it out? <laughs> and then they ask us the question, we right. answer it. Right. That's, oh, that's, that's a great point. I really yeah. love that. Uh, whoever came up with that uh, it was really smart and a very, very important person, right. I'm sure. 
Um, so let's shift gears again if we can. Um, American Apparel is a brand that I would say had a lot of opportunity for you to learn in because mm -hmm. it seemed like the environment was right. Right. A lot of the folks in the audience, you know, maybe even myself included, we always we're, we're not, and for certainly for you too, we're, we're not always in those positions. So what I like to talk about is how people can put themselves in a position to win. For example, how to put yourself in a position where you're what you did. I'm guessing to get hired by American Apparel was to put yourself in the network that that would become possible. Totally. Uh, I, one of the big myths is that like these big corporations, these big companies, somehow exist on a different planet or a different universe than like everyone else. Um, one of my favorite examples of this is like commercial real estate. It seems like really like crazy. It's like, man, you're selling like a skyscraper. You're selling like this big building. How do they sell those buildings? They put a sign out in front that says like for lease or for sale, just like you would if you're selling your house. So it's like what I, what I realized is that like American Apparel, it just happened, was dealing with the exact same problem that I'd solved for a, an author who was a single person. Like companies and people end up dealing with a lot of the same issues, they yeah. have the same problems. And in some cases, important companies or people uh, almost, it's almost easier to solve their problems because they've got more resources mm -hmm. and it's more important to them to solve it. And so uh, I put myself in that position by experimenting and learning things that happened to fall in the wheelhouse of this bigger company. And like, uh, I totally understand what you're saying. Like not a lot of people find themselves in that position. And I don't find myself in that position a lot either. That's why I jumped on the opportunity when it was there. I remember I was talking to Dove and he was like, you know, this is a half billion dollar company. Like you're not gonna get this opportunity anywhere else. And I was like, yeah, you're absolutely right. This is a great canvas to, to paint on. And uh, that's why I took it. Beautiful. You're at Ryan Holiday on Twitter. Let's yeah. follow him if you're paying attention on the old interwebs. And you have a, a great blog, so Thank talk you. about the blog, and then you publish a reading list, which avid reader, devour however many books a week we were just talking about. Talk about all that little ecosystem so the folks at home can take something special away besides maybe a signed copy of your book. Well, it's funny, I, I actually just realized that, that something that we were talking about earlier is totally what I, so I have a reading list where I send out like reading recommendations, like all the, I go through all the books that I read in a month and I say, like, here are the ones that were good, you should read all these, and here are connections to other books, or this is how I came to them. I've been doing this for like three years, and basically, I was doing it just because like, I like to talk about books, and then when I came out with this book, it was like, man, I've been giving these people book recommendations for three years, you should recommend yeah, your own right. book. Right, <laughs> I got to recommend my own book, and like I think I sold like a thousand pre-orders like that day because those people were primed and ready to hear from me because I like for them to buy one book from me is nothing when I've already recommended to them, you know, five hundred, right, right. seven hundred. I love books. this. We have to debunk a myth right okay. here on the show, and the myth is that by promoting other people, you'll somehow be not like like stealing your own, okay, right. this is the biggest crock of shit that I, I think is on the internet, that people like, I'm not willing to promote my other photographer, and I have a whole, like a column in my blog where I'm like highlighting emerging photographers. Now, people are like, well, isn't that dangerous? Aren't they gonna take your work? Well, right. first of all, if they take my work, then I'm doing something wrong. 
Right. And second of all, there's a whole bunch of work. Right? right. I have to get hired 10 times a year. So you think I'm going to remove the, t the 10 people that hire me to shoot a big campaign every year? You think if that's the case, that I'm going to somehow go out of business because this? It couldn't be further from the truth. So you are here recommending all these other books that you're an author. And yeah. ultimately, when you do... A rising tide floats all boats. That's, that's the same. See? <laughs> we should change. Um, <laughs> no, like... Uh, there's no better proof of that than sites like FARC and Reddit and uh, even like the Drudge Report, whose only business model is sending people away to other sites. But people keep coming back because they're doing them a service. Because there's great content there. Yep. I love that. Other questions out in the internet or here in the studio? Yes, my good sir, please. Hey, Ryan. Yeah. My name's Robert. Uh, you mentioned earlier that you're a big testing guy. Yeah. Um, and you obviously have really good intuition, and I imagine that most of the time your intuition leads you to the testing. Yeah. But are there times when your intuition overrides the test results? Uh, it goes both ways. So, um, for instance, like with the title, I had another title in mind for the book, and I knew it was the right title, I loved it, it's what I wanted to do, and then I tested it with like a hundred very influential, trusted people who, who I know who are in publishing, they're in marketing, and trust me, I'm lying. I think it got 50% of the votes and no other title got more than like 10% of the votes. So it was like, all right, now I'm able to seriously consider this title and now I'm gonna be more open-minded about it. And, and I, I came to think about it a lot and, and I came, my intuition came to match what the results were. And then other times, like uh, the publisher, when they first, like the cover changed a lot but when the publisher first saw the um, first saw the the cover, they were like, "That absolutely cannot be the cover. Like, it's not going to work. We don't see it." And I I was like, "This isn't the cover either. I know it, but it's close. Like, we're on the right track." And so we kept changing, we kept changing, we kept testing, and eventually we got to a place where, when tested with the same audience, the cover compared to the other choices, got the same share of votes as the title had. So it's about, I think the saying is, uh, strong opinions loosely held. So it's have, have your intuition and uh, be ready to, to sort of fight to the death for it, unless sort of countervailing evidence comes into play, then you drop it like that. And um, that's, that's how I think about these things. I have my intuition, I know what's right. Um, but I'm also open to testing and to changing my, changing my mind. Beautiful. There's just a few minutes left in our show. Okay. Ryan's been slaying it up here and dropping tons of knowledge. Thank you so much. For the folks in internet land, this is your last chance to drive folks to the show at HP Print. Needs to be in your tweet, the URL to the show, and a clever thing that you've heard Ryan say, um, because we are in momentarily, and I'm sure that Megan is compiling this right now, uh, a couple of folks who've said really interesting things. You're going to give them a signed copy plus some case studies. And these copies, are they're not even out there in the world. This is going to be the first one you signed. No, right? these are all first editions, I guess. Yeah. yeah. That is very, very exciting. So uh, last chance there. Um, boy, question in the audience here before we give that stuff away? Yep, back there, please. Yeah. Oh, he's just he's throwing himself at the mic. I love it. The enthusiasm, the <laughs> eagerness is... Beautiful, we love it. So this is on uh, your marketing campaign, your, you know, the actual job that you get paid for. Yeah. Um, so how much are you telling people what to believe 
and how much are you identifying and partnering with what they already believe? Um, to try to tell someone what they should believe is sort of like running against a headwind, right? You don't want to do it unless, unless you have to. So like, what I like to do is, like, let's say I didn't, I didn't write this book, I was just marketing it. I would sit down and I would look, instead of taking this sort of whole book and saying, like, here, write about this book, I would, take, I would break it apart into pieces and find pieces of it that were very relevant to audiences or people who have already talked about that idea, and I would give it to them. And I would say, like, see, this book says what you already believe. And then that gives them a chance to talk about the book in a way that doesn't include all the pesky distractions of disagreement or, or whatever. Um, so you're, you're sort of going to where you're going to find uh, a receptive audience rather than trying to jam it down the throats of people who are not going to believe it. So don't sell, uh, you know, you've got a, a, an anti-Obama post. Maybe you don't want to sell that to the Huffington Post. You've got you know, an anti-Republican post. You probably don't want to sell that to Matt Drudge. So smart. Uh, I think let's um, wrap the show up. Sadly, we've got a little bit of business to wrap up here. Okay. Uh, interesting next show, July 25th, Robert Scoble. How many of you oh, out nice. there are familiar with Robert Scoble? Basically, Scoble launched Tim's book, Into the Stratosphere. Totally. Uh, he's a tech guy. Um, he discovers interesting entrepreneurs and startups all over the world. Fascinating guy. Um, media genius in his own right. I'm pretty excited about that. Uh, we've got people signing. Is there, there's a way that they can sign up for your stuff, right? They yeah, go just go blog. to my site. You can, uh, you can, there's the stuff about pre-ordering the book. There's also the reading list. There's like a little message that pops up at the top. Or you can subscribe or email me or whatever. I, I'll, I'll set it all up. Beautiful. Cool. And Let's see, other housekeeping issues. I have, uh, again, a huge debt of gratitude to the folks that make this show possible. Um, and to HP, thank you so much for supporting us, and Braun Color and B&H. Uh, without this, could not be possible. Next show is the 25th. Speaking of email signups, if you want to pay attention to what we do, and you want to know about guests first, you can do that by signing up um, on the live page, chasejarvis.com live. You can be the first to know. You can also find a way to get into this in-studio audience here, which is how a lot of folks uh, are able to be a part of it. And we've had people come from as far away as Switzerland to sit here and get to meet folks like you, Ryan. Um, huge thanks. What else? I got a little list of things. Oh, quote winners. The folks that have been pimping the show, uh, a huge, huge thanks to you folks. That is Compass Dawn Light? Compass, Compass Don't Lie. Compass Don't <laughs> I, sorry, I was up super late last night, you guys. Honestly, this is just, it's so embarrassing. Compass Don't Lie says, uh, I'm a creative marketplace. If you, oh, in a creative marketplace, what you want is differentiation. And then Kristen Levesque, create ads that become content that become the news. You folks are already understand Ryan's book intuitively, but you get a signed copy. Um, gosh, speaking of books, like, I like it's a book, Yeah. right? It's like a physical thing. There's something, you actually were talking about that last night, like how physical things are. Yeah, I mean, you want differentiation when everyone else is sending emails, like you wanna meet face to face. When everyone else is doing uh, conference calls, you wanna send packages. When people are doing eBooks, like you wanna do physical books. Or if everyone's doing physical books, you wanna do eBooks. Like you wanna do something that's different. And I think, when everyone is so, obs when, when there's so much noise on the internet and someone's so obsessed with 
digital stuff, one of the best things you can do is print. focus on printed stuff. Like you were talking about Polaroids. Polaroids are an amazing example. Like you have 5,000 photos on your phone that you don't give a shit about. You get a Polaroid, it's the coolest thing ever, even though it's like technologically way less cool. And print stuff out, do it, it's, uh, little it matters. A little nugget right there. Um, gosh, I think, is there anything else I haven't done, Megan? Um, this is great, it's been an amazing show. Thank you all folks here in the audience for coming down to the studio in Seattle at the garage. Uh, phew, make sure I haven't forgot anything. Please join me in giving a huge thanks, a huge round of applause to Mr. Ryan Holiday. And buy his book. All right, that about wraps it up. But before I let you go, I want to say, A, a huge thank you. B, let you know how to find me. I'm basically at Chase Jarvis all over the internet on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Uh, I'm very active on Snapchat. You guys should check it. If that's a platform that you enjoy, uh, check me out there, as well as all the other ones. It's a super important ask for you to share this also. Uh, subscribe via iTunes, SoundCloud, and or Stitcher. And most definitely, if you're willing to put in a little bit of extra juice, please leave a review on iTunes. That helps make our podcast more visible. Last place that you can check it out and, and get some additional value is in my newsletter, which is chasejarvis.com slash VIP. That is where I put content out before it hits my social platforms. So that's sort of the insider track. Leave comments all over the internet for me. I will track them down and respond as best I can. And uh, again, huge thank you for listening to the podcast. And I'm looking forward to the next episode already. I hope you'll join me next time.